Amen. Thanks, Coach Fam. You can have a seat. Good morning, everybody. Oh, yeah. Okay. My name is Brandon. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, I'm really glad you're here. Um, roll back with me. It's 1995. With me. It's 1995, and my 11-year-old self has $80 burning in my pocket. $80 burning in my pocket because I spent my first summer job um, at an old, the old Baptist church where I grew up painting uh, the brick wrought iron fence that surrounded the property. I did it basically like child labor, slave labor is what it was. But they gave, me, they gave me $80 at the end of the summer. And so I rode my bike home. I grabbed my dad. We crossed the alley behind our house into the then Kmart Superstore. And I walked in there and I scoured the aisles looking for the thing that my like 11 year old heart was just like, like I can't wait to get this thing. And I turn the aisle and we find it and this thing is going to change my life. What is it? It's my Sony CD cassette combo, silver edition with detachable speakers and mega bass, right? And mega bass. Uh, this was my first CD player I ever bought. And like it began this fascination with me um, of just like all things bands and music. And so of course, after that, I have to buy my CD sleeve, right? That organizes all the CDs. All you fourth through sixth graders have no idea what I'm talking about. So. Um, we would organize them all. It was beautiful. It had everything from DC Talk to Rage Against the Machine. So that was what was in my CD case. And if memory serves me correctly, like I spent all, I spent all 80 bucks, and I, th I think my dad had to like cover the tax and cover the cost just to help me get this thing into my, um, into my house. And it just started like me and, and music. Like I would play a CD, I would rewind it, I'd learn the guitar rift and re redo it and redo it and redo it. Um, and so like this boombox was fantastic. It literally like, it, it was everything. Like my room couldn't handle the mega bass, much less our, our neighbors who uh, in our little three-story condo apartment in Orange County couldn't handle the mega bass either. Um, but this is the primary thing. Like I spent, like I treasured this thing. I love this thing. This boombox was fantastic until the Sony Discman came out with 30-second skip free, right? And I was just like, this is amazing. And so I got another summer job, and I spent all my money on that thing. Um, and then eventually, like, I just kept going. Eventually, I bought the skipless Discman. And then I remember, like, my first year in uh, working up at Hume Lake Christian Camps. It was, my, like, a summer job at camp, and my buddy goes down the hill and he, to buy something, and he comes back, and he opens this box, and it's the first-generation iPod, right? With one gigabyte memory storage, <laughs> 240 songs on it, and, like, there went my summer paycheck job. Like, it's gone. So, like, give me the thing. So, like, I, I, sh I share that with you because, like, in a matter of 10 years, 10 years, my revolutionary Sony Megabase boombox is gone, and, it, like, now this thing fits in my pocket, Right and is four times the price and and I, and I say because it it's like our, our treasures on earth, where moth and rust and or vermin destroy, thieves break in and steal. What we what I dearly valued as eleven year old self, it like quickly vanished. It was gone. It, it morphed. But like I, I was so obsessed with that thing as eleven year old, and here it is, gone. As a church, we've been walking through the teachings of Jesus found in the Gospel of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. As a new Jesus community, we are intentionally doing this to ground ourselves in the words and the way of Jesus. We hear this word a lot, to like apprentice to Jesus, 
Discipleship to Jesus is what that means. Discipleship almost, we, we were talking about this this week, is almost a dead word. Like we don't know what it means, but we know what apprentice means. So we want to become like Jesus. We want to be with Jesus. And we want to do what Jesus would do if he were us in our situation today. So if you have your Bibles, would you open up to Matthew 6? And Jesus has been warning us in this passage. If you've, if you've been here the past couple weeks, we've been teaching through it. If not, just to really like to recap, Jesus is kind of warning his disciples and trying to help us like to recognize when we are doing things for the attention of others, specifically religious things. When we give to the poor or needy, do we do it to be seen by others? When we practice prayer or we're pious in our prayer, do we do it so that others notice that we are pious? Or when we do things like fasting and spiritual disciplines, do we do, we do so that we get noticed? And Jesus is saying here, like, man, when we do that, when we do things to get noticed by other people, we actually get what we want is to be noticed by other people. But we don't get, like, the reward that God has for us because our Father who sees in secret gives rewards when we do it. So we're practicing doing things unto the Lord and not for the attention of others. And as Jesus followers who participate in the kingdom of God, Jesus knows that it's the seeking of the approval of others that actually stunts our maturity. We're wanting to, we, we need to grow up, but this kind of stuff stunts our maturity. And so he warns and redirects our seeking to its proper place, which is the Father. And in this section, Jesus is going to continue this. This is a transition piece for Jesus, but it's also like summarizing um, some of the rest of chapter six that we've been in. It's not so much seeking the approval of others now, but he focuses on seeking of possessions. And I'm gonna use the word our stuff today because that sounds more fun to say, right? Our, our stuff, our possessions, and money as a means of security, comfort, and even worship. With money, Jesus warns against the dangers of storing up treasures on earth, but this time he does not actually offer a correct way to store material wealth. In fact, he goes on to say that money all too easily becomes a master that actually competes with our allegiance to God, a competition God doesn't accept. And so let's read our passage today one more time, Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When I say we're gonna talk about Jesus' teaching on our stuff, and next week we'll talk about in our money. My hunch is that most of us right now in our heart just went kind of like, ugh. Like this like, ugh, we're gonna talk about money again. Or money at, like, at any point. Or some of you are maybe like, where's the nearest exit? I'm done. Like, of course I'm in a church and they're talking about money. If we're honest, um, I would suspect that most of us, like we just don't really like talking about the idea of money. In fact, in our American culture, that is actually something that, that has moved into like the private sphere, right? If, like, if, if someone, someone doesn't come up to you and be like, hey, how much did you make this year? Right? You're just like, oh, buddy, that's off limits. You don't get to ask that, right? These things, this, this idea has become into the private sector. So when we talk about money, there's this little bit of like tension and uncomfortability. At least maybe it's just me that kind of happens. And I wonder if that tension and that discomfort is there 
especially among like people who are following Jesus because like we actually desperately need to talk about it. Because later in this passage, Jesus will say like, man, you can't serve both. They both vie for your allegiance and vie for your attention. Jesus seems to be quite comfortable a lot. Here's just a few. Uh, that was our passage for today. This is Luke 12. This is Jesus speaking. Just a few samples of it. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist of abundance of possessions. Luke 12, 33. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Uh, Luke 11 says this, Therefore I tell you, Jesus is saying, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. And then goes on to say, but seek first his kingdom. If we're honest, we spend a lot of time like thinking about our body and what we will wear and what we will eat. And Jesus is saying, don't worry about that. Uh, a couple more. This is uh, Mark 4. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come and they choke the word, making it unfruitful. Last one, Matthew 19. I, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Few teachings could be more contentious and like controversial especially in our like, consumer-driven um, air that we breathe, that it's like, increasingly shaping our culture that we're a part of, particularly in the West. We start today with facing one of the most difficult parts of Jesus' teaching, his, his teaching on our stuff and wealth. And so when Jesus starts talking about money and our relationship to it, if it does cause some discomfort, which I'm on, like, it does in me as well, I think why some of that discomfort happens, because it lies in two things. One, a false perception of God in relationship to our stuff. And two, a false perception of our stuff and our relationship to it. First again, it's a false, um, a false perception of God and his relationship to our stuff and our false perception of our stuff and our relation to it, both being issues of the heart, which is where Jesus is always driving us in this sermon. First, our false perception of God. I think deep in our subconscious, when it comes to God and our stuff, we often have a tendency to see God, at least most of us, if you've grown up in the church, to see God as almost like a dictator deity, um, like demanding obedience, always kind of looking like, oh, you have too much, you have too little, a little disappointed in us all the time, right? Like that, like, I'm just barely putting up with you type of a thing. Sometimes we have that view of God. It's a false perception. Nothing can be further from the reality and the truth of what the scriptures paint of what God is like. We most clearly see what God is like through who? Through Jesus. If you've seen Jesus, if Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The scriptures say that he is the image, the icon of the invisible God. It says that in the first chapter of Colossians. Yes, Jesus is God. Like a radical, like God is like Jesus. If you're wondering what God is like, we look to the Son. We look to Jesus. And Jesus' prayer for his disciples is for us to be in loving union with God, just like Jesus and the Father are one, that we would be formed in the way of agape love, experience life how it should be lived, the kingdom of God here and now. And why this is important is because our view of God, our belief about God, actually shapes everything else. It shapes our behavior. It shapes how we think and how we act. 
is our view of who God is and who we are in him. And so before we dive into this teaching, I just want to like two things. Like I want to reframe a little bit, just like who God is and what he's trying to do, especially with us and why he, when he talks about stuff and money. One of his closest disciples, uh, the disciple John, captured Jesus saying in his gospel that God so loved the world that he gave. What's that scripture reference? Anybody know? John 3, 16. We know it so well. It's one of the most famous passages in the Bible, but often we become numb to the revelation that that is of what and who God is like. In his paraphrase, the message, Pastor Eugene Peterson gives us really great like paraphrase of this that I want to read and I'll put on the screen. Before we talk about money and stuff, I want this, like, this passage to rewire. When God speaks to us about money and about stuff, his heart in doing that, like what he's like when he does that. So this is John. Uh, this is uh, Eugene Peterson's uh, reference. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need to be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help. He came to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust in him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe in the one of kind son of God when he introduced him. This is the crisis we're in. I love this. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God light and won't come near it, fearing painful exposure. But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God light so the work can be seen for the God work it is. I love that paraphrase. It, it kind of reframes, like God's posture is here like to, like, to help and to form us into the thing that we actually desire and want. And that's like the good life. That's flourishing. Almost everything in our life, like we, want, we want to like be full, mature, whole humans. And God is saying in this passage, like, like you can trust me that that's what I want for you as well. So as we venture into the teachings of Jesus on money and stu stuff, I want to start with a crazy assumption. What if Jesus is right? What if Jesus actually knew what he was talking about? What if his teachings for us today are actually in place to help set the world right? What if his words and how we approach our stuff and our money actually sets us free to live the life that we actually desire? Jesus is a brilliant teacher on the flourishing of humanity, and his teachings aren't just right in a simplistically moral sense. Like, they're, they're, they're good, his teachings are good. Jesus' teachings aren't arbitrary. Yes, they're laws, but like moral laws are no different than scientific laws, like E equals MC squared or gravity. They are statements of how the world actually works. This is how the world actually works. Ignoring them actually causes disunity in our relationship with God, our creator, and goes against the grain of the universe that he created. So many of Jesus' teachings on money or stuff, Jesus is actually just revealing to us how the world actually works, how humans actually work, how we, how we like can, can 
participate in the which is often what we run to stuff and to money to find, which is freedom and flourishing. But Jesus gives us another way of living in the world that is good and beneficial. And so we need to adjust our perspective on our stuff. Uh, a friend of mine, um, I always love the story he told. It actually kind of shaped like some of the stuff we've done with our kids. Um, but I was also a youth pastor for a while. And if you have ever been like around a lot of kids, they always want to know what's next, right? Like if you're going about your day, like, what are we doing now? 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 And I learned early, like quickly on, like you can't ever tell them um, or it just doesn't stop, right? Like you just go like, so if they're like, hey, how far away? We're like, uh, we're, I would just lie to them. Be like, we're seven hours away. Like it's a 30 minute drive. And they're like, eventually they just stop asking. But my favorite story is a friend of mine, he would, they would have this um, event when their kids turned five, they would surprise them with a trip to Disneyland and they wouldn't tell them. And they would just like wake up in the morning, get in the car, we're going. And then they would pull up into Disneyland, the most magical place in the world. The kids would freak out, it was the best day of the world. Well, he would tell the story like his last kid, or maybe his second kid, I don't remember exactly, but woke them up and said, get in the car, we're leaving, we're doing something special today. She had a birthday party that day planned um, and said, like, I'm not going. Like, there's no way I'm doing it. And the parents were just stuck. Like, what do we do? Like, we have, we have tickets. We have this. And at some point, like, the, the daughter was so refusing, not wanting to go and not having any idea she's about to go to Disneyland for the first time and puts her foot down and be like, no, right? And the parents just go like, okay. And so she went into the birthday party that day, had a great day. And that night they sat her down and said, hey, this is what we're going to do today. We got, here's the tickets. And the girl's just like, can we please redo the day? Can we do it tomorrow? And they're like, no, you missed out. Like, there's this idea, like when God speaks, it's, it's that picture of, of God saying, guys, here's the life and the way of flourishing. And often, if you're like me, it's like, I, I think there's a better way. I, I think there's this, like, this birthday party I can be part of. And God's like not hovering, going like, okay, if that's what you choose. Like there's, there's, there's freedom in that. But if we like come to apprentice other, under Jesus, there's a freedom we get to experience. There's a flourishing we get to experience. So as we read the passage today and the other passages of Jesus teaching on money, if they sound crazy to you, you're not alone. They do to most of us in the West. Aspects of these teachings, I honestly still just feel like immature in and uncomfortable with. But I keep coming to Jesus and I want to yield to him. May I suggest that if we're not on board with Jesus's view of money, it could be that we actually don't believe in the gospel of the kingdom. The good news that the life we've always wanted or hoped for is fully available right now, right here through Jesus. Intimacy with the Father's presence. There's nothing standing in between the life the scriptures say that is truly life, not your income, not your age level, not your relationship status, nothing. I want to suggest that the reason Jesus' words always cause so much friction about money and stuff is because it's all too easy to believe another gospel altogether. Gospel simply is the Greek word euangelion. It means good news. It is primarily a political word more than it's a religious word before it got used solely for that. It simply is a royal announcement. Good news. It means simply that, good news. Just like in Jesus' day, we are surrounded. We are swimming in a bunch of other good newses, a bunch of other gospels. 
another version of what the good life is and how to obtain it. And I believe that, why, that when we hear Jesus talk about money and stuff, there's an agitation and a comfort because we are soaking in the myth of like this Western way of thinking, which is primarily like consumerism that we've all grown up with. And it rubs against when Jesus says, hey, sell everything. Or when he says, like, like, give to the poor. Or when he says, don't store up all that stuff. It's not going to give. It, it rubs against that friction. At least it does for me. Let's call it the American gospel. The gospel makes the opposite claim of Jesus. In a nutshell, the gospel we're used to, the good news we're used to in this culture, is that the more you have, the happier you will be. I, I, I believe it all the time the more I need a little bit more, or I need this here. The more I have, the happier you will be. When you just get this, that you see, like, that's bombarding you on Instagram, right? If I just get that, I'll be a little happier if I get that. I'll be a little more complete and a little bit more full if I get that. There's a great quip from author uh, Davis Foster Wallace about two young fish swimming along. Two young fish swimming along who happen to meet an older fish, and the older fish nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two younger fish like kind of swim off. And finally, one of the fish looks at the other fish and goes like, what the heck is water? You don't know we're in the water until like you leave a fishbowl. We swim in the water of stuff. We swim in the water of consumerism that we have begun to get like our identities from the things that we buy or sell. We deeply believe that just a little bit more will make us happier. We may not openly admit it, but a lot of us believe that saying, like I am what I buy or I am what I sell. And for a lot of people, things aren't just things. They actually can become our identities or how we're seen or how we're known. One sociologist made this point in the Western world. In the Western world, materialism has become the new dominant system of meaning. He argues that atheism hasn't replaced cultural Christianity. Shopping has. We now get our meaning in life from what we consume. Um, there's a great, uh, I'm going to skip this for just time today, but there's a great chapter in a book by uh, Pastor John Mark Comer um, called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry on Simplicity. I um, mean, he goes through and kind of maps how like the water we swim in, consumerism stuff, like it hasn't always been like that in America. Like previous, like, like pre-World War I and World War II, our, like we were predominantly farmers and now only like 2% of Americans actually are farmers. Way to go, Baco. Um, Way to go. But before, like, farming was hard life. It was hard work, but it was a lot simpler. Where, like, you either just traded what you need. That We had a lot more things that we needed as opposed to the things that we desired. And post-World War I, post-World War II, when we have now all these empty factories that we made to make tanks, now we make T-shirts. And something in our culture shifted. This is from um, Paul Lehman of Lehman Brothers said this about the American economy. We must shift America from a needs-based desire culture. People must be trained to desire to want new things, even before the old has been entirely consumed. iPhone, anybody? Um, we must shape a new mentality. Man's, listen to this, man's desires must overshadow his needs. It sounds like a plot of a villain movie, is what it sounds like. The message that we get on a daily basis, social marketing and design, is delivered to tell us that you don't have enough. 
and just if you had a little bit more, you'd be happier. Digitally market experts estimate that most Americans, listen to this, most Americans are exposed to 4,000 to 10,000 ads per day. Per day. This is the water we swim in. From that book, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, I love this quote, it says, shopping is now the number held by religion. Amazon.com is the new temple. The visa statement is the new altar. Double-clicking is the new liturgy. Lifestyle bloggers are the new priests and priestesses. Money is the new God. This is the water we swim in, the water I swim in. And this is what Jesus, when he says, like, for us and for our flourishing. Let's read it again in Matthew 6, just with those lens. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So one, like, let's change a false perception of God that like when, he, when it comes to our mind, like he actually has something to say and not for like a shame thing, but for our freedom and flourishing. And two, relationship with our stuff that we swim in the water where we're just told the lie that if I have more, I'll be happier. In this passage, treasure here, of course, involves our stuff and involves our possessions, but it's not simply about having stuff. It's not just about having stuff. Instead, possessions refer here to the accumulation of things as the source of joy as a source of joy. It refers to the spirit to acquire more and more. And there's actually a pun here in the Greek. Um, it gets lost in translation, but it literally says, don't treasure up your treasures on earth or don't hoard your hoards, right? Like, like don't treasure up the treasures. Jesus is point out, pointing out here that possessions, they can become a source of identity and they're temporary. And if our identity isn't something that's temporary, we actually like, our identity becomes fractured. Martin Luther said the great idol mammon, um, which we'll talk about next week, which gets translated money, the great idol mammon has appointed three trustees, moth, vermin, and thieves, and they ought to remind us of the temporality of our possessions. Puts it in the right place. That boombox I have, I will one day not. In contrast, the disciples are commanded to store up treasures that last. And here, treasures moves from things we value that are fleeting and temporary to things that are moral and things that are eternal, which beckons us to ask the question, what are the things that are eternal? Where moths and vermin and thieves they can't get to. What does it mean to have, like, store up treasures in heaven? That sounds like such a churchy phrase nowadays, like when someone does something really good and you notice it and you're like, hey, well done. And they're like, you know, it's nothing, nothing, brother, just storing up treasures in heaven, right? Like, it, it, it kind of just sounds churchy. What does it mean? How do I store them up? I know what it means up to store earthly treasures. I do that quite well. But how do I store up heavenly treasures? And just for our purposes today, just to give a little bit more context of what this is, would you turn with me a few pages to the right to Luke chapter 12? Luke chapter 12, this is a parallel passage um, where Jesus is teaching the same thing, but Luke, um, his... One of Jesus' disciples captures a different way of how Jesus shared the story. So Luke chapter 12, this is called the parable of the rich fool. 
Verse 15. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. Verse 16, and he told them this parable, this story to illustrate it. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus again. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who's going to get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Do you hear some of the parallel words of, of Matthew 6 there? Before we talk about treasures in heaven are, let's talk about what they're not. The things that will keep us from seeing our treasures in heaven are selfishness, self-centeredness, self-reliance. The problem Jesus identifies here is greed and the failure to care solely about like the failure to care only about ourselves and not about the needs of others, believing that in the fulfillment of life depends on how much I owe. Look through the passage one more time. The rich fool, his whole speech, he says, I, 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 six times, my four times. He says you one time, but he's talking to himself. He's completely talking to himself. He is not suffering from schizophrenia. He is suffering from selfishness. He's, he's, he's selfish. And the shock comes when God, when I do this, when I do this, and the shock comes when God enters the conversation, which the rich fool doesn't expect. He thinks he's the only one in the conversation and he's concerned about only his stuff. And then God speaks. The first step to storing up treasures in heaven and not on earth is the work of taking the focus of our storing up off of ourselves only. Not storing up for us but like thinking of others. Jesus is not against about nice things. He's not against nice things. He's not against even being wealthy. He was supported by people of means, friends who had much. What Jesus' invitation is here, to those who live with much, which is mainly like almost all of us, is to live in such a way with open hands. Live in such a way that these things do not define us. Like Paul says, I've learned the secret of contentment. That when I have much, even when I have little, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We take the focus off me and mine and what I need, and we begin to focus on others. What a different parable this would be if when the rich fool found out he had much, he began to turn towards others. What a different story that would be. Finally, our, for our purpose to notice, let's notice the parallel between the reading of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 and Luke 12 that we just read. Look at verse 21 in, in, chapter, in Luke 12. This is how it will be with whoever stores up, as I were, stores up things for themselves, but is not, what does your Bible say? Rich. Who is not rich in, rich in God. 
This is a great way of helping understand what Jesus means by treasures on earth and treasures on heaven. Treasures on earth are things stored up for ourselves alone, things that don't last. And Matthew 6, 20 says storing up treasures in heaven, but Luke 21, he says being rich towards God. And in Matthew's gospel, Matthew is primarily writing to a Jewish audience. And so Matthew doesn't say kingdom of God. You'll notice that. He says kingdom of heaven as a way of being respectful a way of honoring God as they would not say the name of God. We, what if we understood, just for our purposes, as, as apprentices to Jesus, what if we understood treasure in heaven to like thinking of it like storing up treasures in God? Storing up treasures in God. If we pursued being rich in God, these are the things that last, where moth and vermin and thieves won't break in and steal. The most important commandment for Christians in the Christian tradition is to treasure God, is to love him above everything else with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and all of our strength. And when we rightly treasure God, we will be rich towards God. And we will also rightly treasure what God treasures, which is others, which is our neighbors. We are led to ask together, what are the things that last? What do I actually store up that's going to make it, that's going to last beyond this life and be at, last beyond like destruction? We're led to ask what lasts and what lasts is love. Read 1 Corinthians 13 this week. Paul going through and saying, well, what lasts, all of these things like a faith, hope, and above all, love remains. We can begin to focus on eternal life if we live to love God and posture our hearts to be a place that loves others well. Let's go back to Matthew 6 and just hit this last verse. Matthew 6, verse 21. <clears throat> For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just as a practice this week, that would be such a great verse just to like meditate on and memorize. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus' grounding argument is that what we value, our treasure, which is measured by where we spend our energies, where we spend our time and our stuff, indicates where our heart or the center of our passion is. Our hearts, my friends, will always give us away. We reveal what our treasures are by what we try to protect and what we try to secure and what we try to keep. This passage comes after Jesus is teaching us that when you give to the needy, don't do it so other people will see it and be impressed. When you, when you know that God gives rewards because he sees in secret. When we pray, don't do it for other people to notice. Do it unto the Lord. When you practice spiritual disciplines like fasting, don't do it to show people how super spiritual we are. Your father sees in secret and reward. And this passage, I've been, like, I've been thinking about that Sony boombox all week with Megabase, of course. All week, just been like, just like remembering that story in my life. And I remember the way I treasured that thing. Um, like I, I remember sitting on the floor with it and like that's all I did. That's all I did for days. It's just like play me. I treasured this, this thing. And I remember my heart, my passion for it, for my being and my energy that followed suit that followed suit because of it. I'm amused at my 11-year-old self now with the passion that I valued that boombox with. And contemplating it this week, like that passion and heart for that boombox, it still exists in me. 
the boombox is in some landfill somewhere. I have no idea where. But like the passion that like I had for that, the, the, the treasuring, it's still a part of me. It's just, it's moved and it's morphed, right? It will always be a part of me. Jesus' invitation for us today, I think, is to reorient a treasure is to reorient our treasuring away from the things that don't last and don't actually satisfy. And that's actually a work that we need the Holy Spirit's like, like revelation in. Like, God, what, do I, what am I doing that like actually I'm looking at whatever this is for satisfaction, for identity. And it's, it's eventually gonna be, that can be stolen or that can rust and go away. Jesus' invitation is, again, to reorient our treasuring away from things that don't last and don't ultimately satisfy. And Jesus knows that our stuff and our money and our things can actually become a sense of false security and ultimately doesn't fulfill what Jesus is trying to fulfill in us. God is after a heart posture towards those things to free us from our identity being in stuff. What does it mean for for you to be rich in God? What does it mean for you to store up treasures in heaven? And not like some ethereal maybe one day, but like just like right now. Where do you find like your, your treasure is? For the rich fool in Jesus' parable, what it meant for him was sharing his plenty, being generous with his surplus and the care of others. I think of like other passages of the scripture, the woman who anoints Jesus' feet at Bethany, she comes in with like this alabaster jar, expensive, and she breaks it over Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. This is like an anointing that's preparing Jesus for the cross. And Jesus goes like, wow, like this story is gonna be shared wherever the gospel is shared. Like for her, like she stored up treasures in heaven. I think of Peter um, and John in the book of Acts when they're going to the temple to worship and they enter through the gate called Beautiful and they encounter a lame beggar who asks them for money. And what does Peter say? He says, silver and gold, I don't have. But what I do have, I give you. And in Jesus' name, that person's healed and begins to walk. To be rich in God means that we begin to treasure the things that God treasures. And we see the value that's in them. Tomorrow at work, like what does it mean for you to store up treasures in heaven? Tomorrow at 10 a.m., whatever you're doing, what does it mean for you to be rich in God? Where you work, where you teach, where you labor, where you talk to people, where you serve others? What does that mean for like just our day-to-day to be rich in God? When you encounter someone in need, what does it mean to store up treasures in heaven? What would it look like to store up treasures in heaven just like with a friend in your life? or with your family after the gathering today. It's like invest in the things that last. The early church is marked by radical generosity. And that's something that like we wanna be as a people who apprentice Jesus, that follow in his generous ways. Where Jesus, Jesus models what's storing up treasures in heaven and is as like a present attention to the needs of others above himself. And so that we just want to like, as we, as we go into just a time of worship, um, and we are going to take the bread and cup, um, as we take the bread and cup every Sunday, it's an act of actually receiving and rehearsing grace. We're receiving and rehearsing grace. We've done nothing to receive the forgiveness of God except our yes. 
and God freely gives it. And we experience that as we take the wine or the juice and the bread. We experience the new covenant um, that Jesus inaugurates and invites us into. And so as we do and as we worship, my, my heart is like asking the Spirit, when you ask the Spirit today, God, like, what am I treasuring right now? Where is that tension in my life and the pressure and is there a false treasure there? And God, Holy Spirit, like, would you reorient my treasure to the things that, that last? Um, would you pray with me as we, as we go into a time of worship? Come, Holy Spirit. God, we ask that, like, as we um, just kind of wade through these topics and we wade through your teachings and we come to your feet as our teacher and we just ask that you would teach us, like, the good life, like, how to live fully human. And Jesus, you do that so well, but I also know, like, when you do that, it, it, it does rub against things even within me. And so, Jesus, I pray that, like, just for us as a community, you would actually increase our trust in you that you would give us by your spirit courage to like confront the things that we treasure, um, confront the things that where I get my identity in, and it's like a false reality. It's, it's gonna be destroyed, it can be stolen. And God, would you replace that? God, would you help like reorient our treasure to things that last so that our heart would follow, our whole being would follow. Jesus, we just, we trust you in this. And so as we, as we take some time to worship, I pray, God, that you would just do a work in our hearts. God, if there's like, if there's like even like chains and like, um, like attachments and addictions to our stuff and our money, I pray just by your spirit that you would free us, that you would break us of those. Jesus, like we trust you. We pray that your kingdom would come like in our city, in our lives, in our hearts, in our families, in our workplace, as it is in heaven. So Jesus, we worship you in this time. We give you our praise and we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we worship? We're going to worship. And after a few songs, we'll, we'll, we'll dismiss to take communion.